I learned how to drive a stick shift when I was 17 or 18 years old from my buddy Greg Moulton. He's one of the nicest guys I've ever met, just a great guy. And he had this old Ford Pinto, and we met up about four in the morning at Mr. D's parking lot in the south side of Indianapolis. And he taught me how to drive a stick shift. So whenever I see a Ford Pinto, I think of Greg, and it always brings back good memories. I was driving through the neighborhood the other day, and I pulled up behind this Ford Pinto. It was just rusted out. Looked like it'd seen much better days. And I looked down, and I noticed it had a bumper sticker on it. And the bumper sticker said, I just filled up and doubled my car's value. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's a creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is John Lomax III. John's a historian, a journalist, an author, a producer, a publisher, a photographer, and he's managed people like Towns Van Zant, Steve Earle, and Casey Chambers. I think it's fair to say that John's family has done more to shape American music as we know it than any other family. If you sang Home on the Range when you were in school as a kid, you can thank his grandfather. You can thank his uncle Alan Lomax for making thousands of field recordings of people like Muddy Waters. There's just so many artists that his family preserved and brought forward to a larger audience. John was nice enough to invite me into his home here in Nashville. And we sat down in his office and he shared a whole lot of stories about his family in part one. I've separated this into two parts. Part two will be all about Towns Van Zandt. But I hope you guys enjoy it. Here's John Lomax III. My granddad was born in 1867 in Mississippi. And in 1869, they all went to Texas like a lot of people did, the, the whole GTT, gone to Texas thing. After the Civil War, there was a general migration, partly because there was a whole lot of land available and other other reasons, but he was part of a, they packed everything up in a covered wagon and they went off to Texas from central Mississippi. It took them about two months, I guess, for a drive that would take us 12, 14 hours today. They sat for days waiting to cross the Mississippi. There was a lot of other wagons waiting for the ferry. But they settled in a place called Meridian, Texas. Actually, they settled outside of Meridian on, and, uh, on a farm. I don't know if they bought the land or if they just got it. But for whatever reason, there they were, and it turned out the land was smack in the middle of what was known as the Chisholm Trail. What became known, I'm not sure if it was very active in 69, 
But a few years later, that became the main route to drive cows up to market in Kansas City. So he would uh, sit around the house at night, and they had no electricity, so you had a lantern, and they had one book in the house, and that was Pilgrim's Progress. So after he got through with reading that a few times, uh, he got curious about the cowboys. He'd hear them outside. They practically were in the backyard passing through, and they would bed down the cows, and he would hear them singing to the cattle to calm them down and keep them from stampeding. So triggered his interest, and that sort of started the whole procedure. After a while, he started writing the words down that he heard them sing and learning the songs and figured out some way of transcribing melodies, even though he had no musical training and obviously at that point had no means to record these other than writing the words down in notebooks. So that's, that was the ground zero for the whole Lomax uh, folk music uh, foray. And uh, he did that off and on for a number of years. And in the first part of the century, he was at the University of Texas. And he had by then gotten a degree and wanted to publish this bring some attention to it. He thought the, that they were a valid field of study, but his superiors at the university told him that the songs of the common man were not worthy of study, and he needed to go listen to the child ballads and follow the line of, of English ballads and folklore, and that these the hoi polloi was not worth his time, the time of a valued academic. And uh, the apocryphal possibly story is that he then destroyed his notes, burned them in behind the dorm. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it certainly makes a, a, good, a, a good sad scene. But he eventually went up to Harvard, and some professors there felt that the opposite, that this was extremely important work to document the songs of common, ordinary folks. They encouraged him, helped him get a Sheldon Fellowship, and underwrote the uh, first recording trip. He sent word around to various newspapers all over Texas and the Southwest that he was coming around looking for cowboy song. And that started, uh, and the first phase culminated with cowboy songs and other frontier ballads, which came out in 1910, and with the foreword by Theodore Roosevelt. And that book has since been, uh, it was later renamed just Cowboy Songs, but it was the source of a whole lot of the songs that we've grown to know and love that might otherwise have been lost, the Chisholm Trail and the ballad, the Buffalo Skinners, which is one of my favorites. Uh, oh, golly, just almost Days of 49. It's almost uh, sweet, sweet Betsy from Pike. If you want to run through the old cowboy songs that you've heard from childhood, and most of them were found and published in those, that, that's, that lit the, uh, lit the candle, so to speak. Uh, he wasn't able to do that full-time. He did it part-time. He was a academic for a while. He was the secretary of the university, and 
founded the Ex-Students Association with some other people. Then uh, on two different occasions, he got involved politically with governors who were essentially trying to take over the university for their own usage and was thrown out and once went to Chicago where he took a job in the banking industry and got to know Carl Sandburg and Studs Terkel. Became part of the Chicago folk scene for a little while, but then moved back to Texas. They actually impeached Paul Ferguson, the governor that had that he had run afoul of, and so he was brought back to the university and resumed his career there. And gradually began doing various collecting trips. The one which uh, would be the best known uh, was the one where he and Alan, his younger son, my uncle, found Lead Belly and helped helped expedite getting him out of prison and then took him on board as sort of their... My grandfather was one of the first artist managers. He basically booked... Lead Belly handled the money, the transport, and Lead Belly pretended he was their chauffeur because traveling around the South looking for songs when whites and blacks were together in the 20s and 30s was not a healthy occupation. So he couldn't be an equal. He had to be the chauffeur or some sort of servant perceived to be in that role. Well, they would ask around, and after a while, it became clear to them that churches and prisons were fertile ground to find people who had songs, or who remember whether they had on them their own songs or other songs. For instance, a lot of the Lead Belly material is stuff that he didn't sit down and write; he heard it and adapted it, and as it traveled through its circuit, it would be embellished by others and verses would be changed, added, and so forth. But uh, I don't know how he knew, I don't know if he knew there was anyone particular at that prison when he went the first time. But uh, he he had ways of finding out just by asking, asking around, you know, anybody that knows who's a good singer around these parts and go into the local store and start asking. And churches, too, were, were a place to find, find people that sang, obviously. Was he welcomed by these people? Or Sometimes, he... other times not, especially on plantations. You know, a white man coming to stir up our niggers was kind of what the general feeling was among the plantation owners. But he was able to uh, convince them somehow that this was worth what he was doing was worth them letting their blacks go from work for a while to sing for him and record. And he, I guess, would say, well, everyone in the world will know this came from your plantation and all that. And in the case of Muddy Waters, everyone knows that was Stovall Plantation. And that was actually Allen that, that found Muddy. He developed techniques for finding what he was after. There would be articles in the newspaper and say, contact so-and-so, and, you know, back then it was all done through the mail, and maybe he got a few phone calls, but it would, would be letters, people that knew where he could find. Uh, and then he would later find a person in that area that would be 
plugged into the music situation and could help help him go find find people. And Alan did the same thing later on when he was doing his collecting trip. He did find uh, Honey Boy Edwards and, uh, of course, Muddy and a few others that they were the first to record. Ironhead Baker was another uh, contemporary of Lead Belly, and that would have gone back to John Avery. Uh, and my dad was John Avery Jr., and he actually set up that first famous collecting trip in 1933 and went on a few of the, uh, a little of it, but he had to get a job. It was the Depression. He had to drop out of Harvard Graduate School to uh, get a job and wound up working for the RFC, examining banks, which in the Depression would have been a job that kept you busy. <laughs> uh, and was not able to really pursue folk singing, although he collected songs that he found and he sang as well and actually did two records on uh, folkways. One solo acapella, standing up and singing the songs that he had heard and learned, and the other with uh, three or four of his cronies in Houston. Smithsonian still has them, still in print, and we sell them at our Roots Music Exporters. I just buy them and buy them at wholesale and sell them at cost to get them out out the door that's got to feel pretty good there's people across the world listening to yeah, the records yeah feels great to be able to keep the family name moving around can you describe the equipment that they were using to record people well, it started with my grandfather and had one of those giant horns that you, he carried around on the back of horseback. He went out collecting originally on horseback with this horn strapped to the saddle. And then he would camp out on the ground, sleep on the ground and build him a fire. And there weren't any motels, there weren't <laughs> any roads. And he didn't have a car initially. Later, uh, Later on, uh, he when he got hooked up with the Library of Congress, they were able to get what was then state-of-the-art equipment, which consisted in the beginning of a 400-pound tape recorder they put in the back of a Model A Ford, and there's pictures of that in various books. And then you would have to drive to the artist. Wherever you were going to record, your studio was your trunk. You couldn't, it was too heavy to carry it and pick it up and haul it around. So they would have to drive to wherever it was they wanted to record. And then, of course, they were recording. It was the original direct-to-disc, literally grinding the, the needle, was grinding in the, uh, the sound on the spot. And if somebody screwed up, there wasn't any retakes. That was the end of that disc. <laughs> <laughs> he started over, and he would have a limited number of discs when he would go out on these tours and to record. So as a result, they would do a, a few run-throughs ahead of time and hopefully catch the, the right performance. Was that sort of an audition process even to see? In a way, oh, absolutely, yeah, to see if the song was worth recording or if they'd heard it before or if the singer was actually had any kind of voice at all, or if they could remember the words and if they had a good grip on the tune. And, yeah, it was definitely an audition as well as a run-through to make sure that, that the 
but they knew the whole song. At the time, you know, folk music was really regional at the time where things would sound drastically different in one part of the country than another. Is that true? Well, in the beginning, sure. The radio didn't really exist till I guess, 1920. And it was years after that before it really became a national power. So it was all word of mouth, literally. And singers would, songs would kind of have their own lives that they would follow. Excuse me, someone would sing it, someone would learn it, and then they would sing it and Someone else would learn it, and they would sing it. And along the way, it would it would change and it would morph. And you had no other means other than, I guess, newspapers. For uh, and they were there was little interest in folk songs and getting published in newspapers. So it was an oral tradition up until radio came along, and then it sort of was the beginning of. In some ways, it was the beginning of the end for true folk music because then the version that was on the radio became the version, and it it wasn't uh, permissible, so to speak, to change it or something. Like you couldn't listen to a Bob Dylan song and go, "That's pretty good. I think I'll change all that around and make it my own song, uh, add a few verses, and so on." But back then, that was what everyone did. You'd You'd hear a song, you'd like it, and you'd adapt it uh, to the local situation. And songs would take on a life of their own and have dozens of verses. And so then when radio came along in around 1920, then it sort of started the the process of their becoming a version rather than multiple versions of songs. Unfortunately, in my view, that that people felt like, well, if you hear it this way, then it has to be that way, and it's not really the case. But well, just that he was around the house a fair amount, and we were quite the scandal in the neighborhood because we had a black person come into the house in the evening when usually the blacks would leave because they were the maids and yard man and such uh, but my dad had i guess well he found out about him uh, lightning was you know he had several times when he was sort of lost and rediscovered over his career which lasted from the i guess early 40s on into his till his death and my dad recruited him for the folk song society that they started in houston in the 50s the houston folklore society and he would get Lightning to come play shows or play at various little nightclubs. They became sort of friends through music, I guess. And uh, my dad knew a lot of the same songs that, that Lightning knew. And uh, at some point, he decided to help manage him and, and book him. And so he took him on just to... Uh, as an avocation, his his vocation was a land developer. He was a real estate person, and he and his partner would find uh, raw land and put houses on them and rent them out a while and then sell them and develop subdivisions that way. But uh, he and Light got to be buddies, and I think the relationship lasted about 10 years. My dad would tour some with him and basically open the show and collect the money and see that the money got back to Lightning's wife or common-law wife. Uh, 
uh, Antoinette. Otherwise, Lightning would drink it or gamble most, if not all, of it away. Uh, Lightning was a pretty much of a devil-may-care sort of fella and uh, loved his card games and other forms of gambling and loved, loved drinking and wasn't one for schedules a whole lot. I think they both enjoyed each other's company, and uh, I guess it would have been a little unusual back in the day, but we never thought anything of it. It was just, oh, yeah, lightning's around the house. He and my dad are doing something, and we were all out playing football or baseball or something. I didn't really get interested in music till later, and uh, I feel like an idiot now. should have taken a lot more pictures. <laughs> what was uh, Mance Lipskin around, around the house Not also? No, Mance really wasn't. Mance, uh, my dad, and actually Mac McCormick were the more so Mac, I think, than my dad that helped uh, Chris Drakowitz find Mance and track him down. Mance was from Navasota, which is about 60 or 70 miles from Houston. And I don't really know the full story of who had the... The leading role, Mac has certainly claimed credit for it, and I think Chris has claimed that Mac McCormick was the one that led him to Mance. But I do remember that Mance did a lot of the folk, Folklore Society events and would come around some. And then my wife at the time and I went over to Navasota and watched some of the filming of the movie about Mance, A Well-Spent Life because I think my dad had uh, probably put some money in there to help Les Blank along, and he was the connection with Les and Lightning when Les made his first blues film. And uh, I think probably put up a lot of the seed money in that for those movies. The, that one and the one on Clifton Chenier, too. When that first came out, I can't imagine it was in theaters. Or... No, no. Uh, <laughs> it was, well, for one thing, it was 16 millimeter, and it was uh, probably, there were two versions of the Lightning movie, a short version, which I think they used mainly to try to retract attention to bring in some funding to do the longer version, but the longer version was somewhere around 50 minutes, I think. So it would what showings it got, I guess, would have been at folk events of one kind or another, and we would just show it at the house every now and then, rent a projector and string it up and, and show them for friends. But I don't know. Eventually, uh, Flower Films, which is the film company, made some sort of deal with Arhuli and their down-home music in order to market market them and I think at one point they were available on VHS and maybe even on DVD now. We still have our 16 millimeter versions. A couple of the films have gotten pretty pink because of the film stock used but it turned out that that was the expensive film stock that turned pink. The cheaper film stock has still kept its true coloring. <laughs> The other lost the magenta, and so it kind of got a pinkish look to it, the more expensive film stock that Les and them used. It was, they were basically running on a shoestring for all those movies.
really small crew. When I saw Les, there was three people. That was the crew, Les, and a sound guy and a girl that helped with all. Do you have any um, personal memories of, of Mance, of what he was like as a person? or? Yeah, he was just, uh, well, he and Lightning were sort of diametrically opposite, I guess, in that Mance was a very, very spiritual kind of guy in his own way, not church religious spiritual, but spiritual in his behavior. For instance, and raised his kids. He raised kids for his family, and he raised kids from the neighborhood. And he, in the movie, he says something about people call me Daddy Mance, because he probably raised more kids that he didn't father than he did. And he, uh, you know, he he had a very very hard life in that he was virtually a slave for most of his life. He wasn't technically a slave like there was before the emancipation, but in all effect, he was working on a plantation, Tom Moore's farm, that he sings about. And that was, uh, that was the life. You work for the man. And the man put you in a house and took care of you for if you got sick, but otherwise you work for him and he got all the benefits of the labor. And this went on in Texas till the 60s. Eventually, he became a free man in terms of he got out from under Tom Moore, and so the last 15 or 20 years of his life, he became fairly well-known and was able to travel around and make a pretty good living as a singer. And Chris Strakowitz, of course, released at least six albums of his, and maybe more, but but his he got, he got the... Rev, he, he was very dependable and very straight ahead and very uh, down to earth. And Lightning was just very flamboyant and very sort of easy come, easy go, and flashy and uh, show off. And Mance just, Mance grew up playing these dances where you'd play all night, literally. On Saturday night, it'd start at six and you'd play till sun up. And uh, that's a different kind of lifestyle than, than playing in a honky-tonk. There'd be a house party, and that it would go on until everyone left when the sun came back up. So totally different kind of, kind of people. It had to have been huge culture shock for, for Mance to go play universities. Yeah, yeah, and see all these young kids loving him. But he took it in stride, and he, he just... Uh, he was very sincere and very uh, straightforward. Lightning was a little, a little more flamboyant and on the uh, show busy kind of thing. I don't know if they knew how much impact, but I think they felt like it was worth being recorded and being put into. If they hadn't have done it, there, it would have vanished uh, a lot of this. And they obviously believed in it and believed that it was worth doing and worth preserving. And so they did. Uh, so, yes, they had a very definite eye on the his historical value of this, whether they knew, for instance, whether my granddad knew when he passed away in 49 if that Lead Belly's music would still be 
vital and alive and recorded and sung today, I don't know. But uh, uh, I think I think that there's some gene in us or something in Lomax's that just calls us to do these things. Whether we're uh, whether it benefits us or not, we just do it. And, uh, I just well, I feel like, for instance, my purpose in life is to spread music around. I can't make it worth a flip, so. I find it and I tell people and I sell it and spread it around and that way it goes around the world and other people can enjoy it. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank John for inviting me into his home here in Nashville. And be sure to tune in next week, where we talk all about Towns Van Sant in part two. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, I'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.